Danny Smith, realtor with TTR Sotheby's International Realty, specializes in historic properties as well as the local real estate market. Danny's intense interest in historic preservation led him to a career in real estate, service on preservation groups, and appointments to city commissions. For your real estate needs, email Danny at dsmith at ttrsir.com or visit his webpage at dannysmith.ttsir.com. Hello, and welcome to Speakeasy. My name is Cody Mellicline. I'm editor at the Alexandria Times. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with city historian Dan Lee. Um, if you are not familiar with either his name or his face, you have certainly seen his words written on historic things throughout the city. Uh, he is someone who is extremely knowledgeable and has documented a lot of stuff in the city, and you've probably seen his words in our paper as well, in the Out of the Attic section. Um, Dan, welcome to Speakeasy. Thanks, Katie. We have a lot to cover here, because uh, as people will learn, your life spans continents and <laughs> uh, many different areas of history, but I, I'd like to start at the beginning. Where did your sort of path towards history and your interest in history begin? Sure. Um, I think, you know, from a very early age, um, I was pretty interested in history. In fact, now that I think about it, my third grade um, paper was on Nathaniel Green, uh, who was a Revolutionary War general. Um, he was famous for a campaign in the South. Um, this was I grew up in, in West Germany. Um, I lived near a, a, an American military base. And so this History, like this project was done at, at a small, like, community based library, which, as you can imagine, didn't actually have that much on Nathaniel sure. Klein, or Nathaniel Green. Um, so I think, like, that's kind of where it started. Um, when I was 12, my parents, um, as I said, I, I grew up in, in West Germany. Um, my parents let me, um, design or, or plan our family vacation. And, um, I, I chose Luxembourg and I wanted to go to different museums of okay. Bulge, um, which I guess kind of shows that I, I already was into history. But sure. um, during that trip, I um, remember seeing a series of letters from a German soldier. Um, he was about 19 years old. And I had kind of always believed that wars were, you know, battles of ideas, I guess is the best way to put it. And um, this, these series of letters showed me that ideals were, you know, very much not on, on this person's, um, yeah, radar. Um, he talked about being cold. He talked about, um, a, uh, a shell, like breaking the glasses that he was wearing. He, he and his friends mm -hmm. were, or, or he and his, his unit were, were hiding inside of a barn. Um, and at the end of the series, it tells you that the soldier died, um, during the Battle of the Bulge. Um, yeah, I, don't want to like humanize evil of course like ideology does play a, a role in, in in war but it didn't it made it seem like this wasn't about ideology it made me relate to this particular uh, historical figure in a way that um that things hadn't before for me and, and so i think like ever since then i cared I, I, my passion for history began began to be about you know ordinary people i 
even though I, I did a lot on, on military history later on uh, in my career, it wasn't so much about generals or tactics. Um, technology, I, I still have yeah. an interest in. But, um, but yeah, and I, I think like from that point on, I, uh, I, I definitely had a different idea of what history was and definitely have a different idea of what the history I want to do is like. Um, when I was 15, my parents took me to Colonial Williamsburg and then sent me um, back to the car pretty quickly because I got into an <laughs> argument with one of the interpreters about how like the person turning butter would, would have been an enslaved person rather than, than the person who was being, um, uh, you know, who was doing the portrayal. I'm very glad to have heard that since then Colonial Williamsburg has tried to, you know, portray these types of activities uh, more accurately. Um, so yeah, I, I think like I've always had like a, a passion for telling the stories of of ordinary people, um, and also about, about getting the facts right. So I think like that's yeah the best way to start it. Definitely, and I know from there, obviously, you, you did end up going to through the UC system, the uh, mm -hmm. University of California system. Um, talk to me a little bit about that because as I understand your focus in terms of history, I mean, that's sort of where you really establish a focus sure. in, in, in any field, but especially in history. What, what was your, how did you, your focus and your interests in specific areas of history develop over, over that time? Sure. Um, I actually went to a small liberal arts college called Claremont McKenna um, as an undergraduate, and I took a course on Cuba and Nicaragua there, which um, was really like a big part of um, what made me realize at least like I was very good at like history and that that was something that I was um, where I had to go to grad school. That was going to be what I was going to focus on. Um, I also did a semester or yeah, two quarters um, at the Humboldt University in um, Berlin. And while there, I met a group of Afro-Germans um, and they weren't um, descendants of African-American GIs and German women. Um, they were um oftentimes immigrants from from different parts of Africa, especially Ghana. Um, and it it really struck a chord with me. In high school, I had read um, Native Son by Richard Wright, and I actually did my senior thesis on Richard Wright and James Baldwin, like the concept of African-Americans being in Europe and kind of like the freedom that it gave them, but also um, the different types of prejudice that they experienced. And um, to go back a perhaps even a little bit further, for those of you who have never seen a picture of me, um, I should clarify, I'm not related to Robert E. Lee. Um, if you were to see a picture of me or, or meet me in person, you, it, that would be pretty obvious. Um, but I do get this question rather frequently. Um, my ancestors are from China, and so growing up in Germany, like it was like this very unique experience that um, I hadn't really seen in literature before. And so I guess like this this experience that, that these two writers talked about, about being African-American in, in, um, in Europe, like really resonated with me. Um, and so when I went to um, Cal or, or UC Berkeley for graduate school, my, my dissertation was on um, African-American soldiers and German women. Um, I helped that I spoke German and I could do research mm -hmm. in German. Um, yeah, so, and kind of like the ways in which the military affected um, civilian life back in the United States um, was really like what my my interests were. How did you go from uh, 
California to working for the Department of Defense. And specifically, I know you you did your work in their uh, their prisoner of war and, and uh, missing in action office. What what was the link there, and how did you go from I guess one coast to the other, and really one area of history to a completely different area of history? Sure. I mean, I don't think it, it was actually that big of of a stretch in terms okay. of decades. Like, um, you sure. know, my dissertation research had been about the 1950s, and I was assigned to the World War II office, so um, the Got 1940s. Um, you know, I had planned to be an academic historian and, and do like the, you know, the professorial thing. Um, I finished my dissertation in 2008 and 2009, and there just weren't any jobs. Um, I knew yeah. I had a skill, um, which was reading and doing archival research in German that was um, marketable, I, I guess is one way to put it. And um, yeah, I, yeah, it, it wasn't that, for some reason, it didn't seem like that big of a stretch for me. I sure. thought like I was just going to do two years um you know with with this postdoc and then you know keep on applying to uh to different academic jobs um but i kind of found something that i'd always been a little bit frustrated with which was like kind of um i don't want to say translating but finding a way to um interface um academic research with a general public with like a little yeah. public even before that, even in graduate school, I, I'd worked at a um, at a big library called the Bancroft Library, um, which is at Berkeley. I had done a couple um, exhibits for them, one on um, Italian-Americans in California and one on Chinese-Americans um, in California. So I kind of had an idea of what public history was like. Um, and, and this was um, something that, um, yeah, I, I think like utilize my skills in, in a different way. I, I thought about I have to think about history in a different way. The people, you know, part of the job it was um, was presenting individual cases to to those um, to family members of, of the people who who were missing, um, and, and they didn't really care about like what school of thought or you know sure. that, that um, you know I was looking you know yeah um, it was it was much more. I don't want to say like fact based, but but they cared much less about about the theories of history and much more about their individual um, case. And I, I think like that was something that prepared me um, for for a lot of the work that I do today. Yeah, that specific kind of work, though, it sounds like there must have been not that that the work you do now obviously isn't important and vital, but there is a different, I guess, connection that you have with that type of work just in so much as yeah you are like reporting that case to the family and it's you can see it impacting them sort of firsthand i, I would assume yeah i mean i think the the concept of what the government owes you has changed over yeah. time um you know bringing missing soldiers back from war it was not really a thing until the vietnam war um and the people the number of people who are missing from the Vietnam War is actually like significantly smaller than you would imagine. Um, mm. It's like under 2,000 people. Um, um, but then the families of people missing from the Korean conflict um, said, well, if you're going to do that for, for those missing from the Vietnam um, conflict, I guess we never actually declared war. Um, then, sure. um, you know, then you owe that to us, too. Um, and then that expanded to, to World War II, um, in which there's a large number of people missing um, yeah, the idea that that your government, if your government takes your child, takes your husband, takes your your um 
your son or daughter now um, away from you and sends them to war that they owe it to you to bring them back, whether you know, dead or alive, um, is a relatively new concept. And, and I think um, sometimes what was interesting was interacting with, with German researchers and German government officials who you know, have a lot of people who are missing on the Eastern Front, and they always ask yeah. why. Like, why, why do you need to, to bring them back? And, um, and explaining how, you know, wars have not ended for us while, while they ended for you in 1945. Like, the United States has, like, this significant history about its relationship to its citizens and especially to its service members that, that has continued. Um, yeah, it's, it takes some explanation. Definitely. You joined, so you joined the city um, in the Office of Historic Alexandria in 2013. Mm-hmm. Was that shift from the, the DOD to working for OHA a welcome one in any way? What was the appeal of the position here in the city? I, I think the main thing was I wasn't going to have to travel as much. I had been spending okay. a lot of time in, uh, yeah, Eastern Germany, um, other parts of Eastern Europe, um, Poland, the Czech Republic, um, Croatia. Uh, I just I'd started dating the woman who's now my wife, and uh, yeah, I was kind of tired of, of traveling a lot. Um, at the time, some of my cases had been rather dark um, with okay. the DOD. Um, some of them involved um, like the Bataan Death March and like elements mm-hmm. of of things that that were you know really tough. Like emotionally, I guess. Um, and so I was looking forward um, to perhaps like a break from that as well. Now that I've been here for a while, we definitely have like research topics that, that are yeah. at least as dark. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't like that's for those of you who are considering becoming historians, like you really need to, to ask yourself, like, you know, if you're willing to, to go to these places, because like once you go, you can't really unring a bell, I guess is, is the best way to put it. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. But but in those ways, I, I was uh, I was pretty excited about that. My uh, my aunt and uncle had lived on Pitt Street, so I, I did have a concept. I've been to Alexandria quite a few times okay. as a child, um, perhaps like every two years. Um, when I first walked into the Lyceum after I'd been hired, like I I recognized the place. Like things had been turned around or, or changed, but but I I knew the um, I I understood the layout. So yeah, I I think like I, I was. In that aspect, um, pretty excited to to do something, um, you know, that, that involved a lot less travel. Obviously, as you said, you'd been to Alexandria in the past, but there's a, obviously a difference between sort of coming to it as a child and sort of getting getting an understanding of it on tours and stuff, and then actually digging into it yourself. Was there anything that, as you sort of dug more into the city's history, you were surprised about, or maybe not surprised, maybe surprise is the wrong word, but sort of just intrigued about in general? Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't want to say like, I I knew like the basics that I knew like sure. the, the overarching story about this being the hometown of George Washington yeah. and, and, uh, and Robert E. Lee. Um, but yeah, I think the, you know, learning about the 1939 uh, sit-in at the library, um, the story behind the contraband in Friedman Cemetery, um, which recently was, was uh, like joined the Civil Rights Network, according to uh, for the National Park Service, um, you know, Freedom House, like these things, you know, are are like on on my radar as, as things that um, 
you know, I am interested in in terms of you know research and, and as a historian. Um, but I didn't I didn't know about that. Um, yeah. When I when I first started and, and kind of, um, you know, I think a big thing when I look back on on my time here, um, you know, since 2013 has been like the integration of African American history into like a larger narrative. It, it isn't just that now, you know we confine African-American history to the Black History Museum sure. or, or even to, to Freedom House. The fact that it's integrated throughout our museums or more integrated throughout our, our museums, um, you know, it kind of goes back to that story about me getting kicked out by my parents like at Colonial Williamsburg. Like the, these weren't isolated even during segregation. Like there was always interaction. There were, there were always... Um, yeah, there are always African Americans in Alexandria, and um, and so putting that part into to the larger story has been something that, um, yeah, I've really seen in my time here. Yeah, this might be a basic question, but I mean, obviously, you were someone who came here, and I, I imagine went on some of some of the tours that many people who've been to Alexandria right. have been on. I, I am not from here, and so when I came down here, I went on many of sort of the basic tours, but. Why do you think Alexandria is of such interest for not just tourists, but residents and historians like yourself as like a, a really centrally focused historical location? Obviously, other than the fact that it is old and it is it has that that depth and breadth of history. What sort of, I guess, separates Alexandria as a, as a location for history and historical knowledge? I think that part of it is it tries to market itself. Um, sure that way that um you know i mean it wasn't always red brick you know sidewalks it, it, it <laughs> yeah. that's a conscious choice it's um you know it's the third oldest historic district in in the country behind um you know new orleans and charleston um people have thought about this as a historic place people have written things down for a long time and i think like you know as a result like you said it markets itself not just to tourists but to to potential residents as, as um, you know, a historic town. Um, yeah, you're right. It's not just because it's old. It, it, it's a conscientious decision. I know another part of your job, um, and it might not be a significant part, but you do, uh, you do oral histories, mm-hmm. kind of collecting, collecting like the, the stories that still exist in the community. Talk to me a little bit about, I guess, what that process is like and if that at all sort of reinvigorates your understanding or interest in history when you do those? Because I have to imagine there's a difference between reading a document that is that's from the 18th or 17th century, which is awesome in its own regard, versus talking with someone who's sort of like lived through an event that you're learning a little bit more about. Yeah. Um, so a lot of times they're like kind of focused projects, whether it's like yeah. immigrant a- Alexandria um, like I, I mentioned, we're doing an exhibit on the Alexandria Hospital, and, and I just finished doing some oral histories um, from some of the doctors there. Um, yeah, um, perhaps one of the more interesting oral histories I did was um, with Phil Hirschkopf, who was one of the lawyers in Loving versus Virginia. He was oh, wow. Bernie Cohen's um, um, law partner. Um, yeah, I mean, it it's Let's talk about that for just a second. He was based sure. in Alexandria. Um, their office was in Alexandria when they found out the, the result from the Supreme Court decision. Um, it means a lot to me personally since, you know, my wife and I wouldn't be able to be married um, if he hadn't won that 
that court decision. Um, the fact that it was only 10 years before I was born seems insane to me. Um, so yeah, I, I think, you know, it is very rare that you get to interview someone who's actually directly affected your life. And, um, how, how could that not invigorate you? How could that not sure. make you think like, um, you know, yeah, his history is still happening, I guess is, is what I'm, I'm trying to say. And, and whether it's, you know, 10 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, um, but it's, it continues to happen today. And, and I think like that's, you know, whether it's interviewing someone who, um, wants to, to tell their, their experiences dealing with, with the COVID pandemic, um, or, um, yeah, the, the transition of, of, uh, or the, um, the start of the neonatal, um, department at, at the Alexandria Hospital. Like, these are, are still things that, that are inherently interesting to me in part because, um, you know, they talk about, they put like a person behind a name and, and the yeah. date. I guess is perhaps the, the best way to put it. Um, when I was younger, even through high school and perhaps even through undergraduate, like history was always about names and dates. And, and while that's certainly important, like there's always a person behind that. And I think like doing oral histories lets you do that. I mean, I can speak from my side of things. It is, it is always, it's always fascinating regardless of who you're talking to and, if they are sharing their story with you, it's a privilege that they are choosing to share their story with you. And, and these are things that can be lost to time and have been lost sure. to time. So to be able to document them is, is I, ma- I imagine it's an enormous honor because that's part of, that's going to be part of the historic record from now until whenever all of this collapses around us. Yeah. I mean, I, I think part of it is it's also like a responsibility. I mean, yeah. you know, to ask the right questions, to ask the questions that people many, many years after you and I are gone will want to know the answers to. And, sure. and that's difficult. I mean, how can you, you know, <laughs> know what, what people are, are really going to care about? But I, I think, yeah, I mean, you know, you want to ask good questions and you want to ask important questions. I, I think like that's, um, kind of like what your what your job um, in, in that situation is. Um, so yeah, for sure. Uh, you mentioned the your involvement in um, the Immigrant Alexandria project before. Yeah, and I I, I do want to note because in looking at your CV, it's interesting between that project and and some of your previous work with the DoD, and even some of your your work in in grad school. It's notable to me that a lot of your work and your interest lies in, whether purposefully or not, in, in stories of kind of movement or some kind of a people in liminal spaces, people between. Um, and I'm sort of curious why that is important to you or, or of interest into you, why, it, why you believe those stories are important to tell, particularly in a city like Alexandria. Um. I mean, part of it obviously has to do with my own personal experience. Of course, of, yeah. Of like growing up in Europe, and you know, we think of borders as you know very static, um, but you know, if you cross the Pyrenees, you've gone from Spain into France, and so like I was always aware, like you know, these types of things happen. Um, you know, growing up near a military base where people you know could be citizens of one country and yet yeah. live in, in a different one um, seemed very normal to me. I, I I guess like one of the things is I, I'm aware that like my childhood wasn't that normal. I think a lot of people always assume that their own experiences are are 
normative and the other people sure you know have had similar experiences and think the same way they do like i didn't have that growing up like it, it was pretty clear to me that that not everyone did this um and so i guess in terms of, of movement it was always clear to me that people moved at, and as the 20th century um came around people moved at, at a much more frequent rate um you know world war ii accelerates that um be it because of immigration um push-pull factors um and i think one of the things that really interested me you know to go back to my work in, in grad school with italian uh italians coming to california why a specific group of italians came to that part of california um for instance um yeah we're, we're like the push factors like not not only like why do people come to to the united states but yeah. what are they what are they leaving from or, or what's created the situation that, that made that necessary? And that, yeah. I think it, in Alexandria, you know, oftentimes that the answer is, is a conflict of some sort, um, you know, oftentimes civil war um, or a way. And oftentimes they come to Alexandria because they have like some sort of sponsor um, in, in this area. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it's, um, you know, we have well over a hundred different languages spoken in our public schools. Um, you know, this is a place where, where a lot of people come to for their own reasons. And I think like it's kind of fascinating how, in some cases how different those reasons are. And in some cases, despite the fact that it's you know, over many decades or from very different parts of the world, but the answer is, is pretty similar. I did want to ask you about, I guess, specifically when it comes to the city's uh, black history and some of the darker chapters of that history, obviously. Sure. Um, as the city starts to engage with this stuff more actively and starts to attempt to reckon with that history as as this city council has and as the city in general has, I guess my, my ultimate question is, what is the path forward in that conversation and in that discussion? And perhaps you don't have a a pearl of wisdom here, but I am sort of curious from your perspective as someone who has perhaps a more firm historic understanding of these narratives what is what is the path forward and what is i guess the work that the city should do as it starts to sort of embark on this on this path um i mean that's a really really big question and, it is yes. and, and i think like the the short answer is i i don't know i do know that it's important to acknowledge the past i do um think that it's important to get uh, to be accurate in, in what we, um, yeah, what we acknowledge and what, what we talk about. I think that, um, the work that's been done by the Alexandria Community, um, Remembrance Project in terms of, of the lynching, of the two lynchings that occurred in Alexandria is really important. And then one of the things that I really like about it is that the community has done, um, you know, has been involved and, and has come together to do the research, um, on the, um, yeah, on that project rather than it just coming from the city or from me. Um, I think that that creates a, a sense of um, investment uh, yeah. from the community, um, which is, yeah, I, I think that that's really important. The way forward, I, I don't actually, I don't have like a good like template. Um, I don't, you know, is there, I, I feel like there's no apology that that brings people back. Sure. Right. I mean, yeah. but you have to, but it's still important to apologize. Like you don't get, 
yeah, you don't get do-overs in history, I guess yeah. is, is, is one way to put it. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I think acknowledging it is, a, is an important step forward, um, you know, bringing the, the community, like making the community aware of it. Um, you know, the things that, that we're doing, I think, are good. I don't actually have an answer for you as, as to, to how they go forward from um, or what the next step should be. Yeah. How much how much of a role do you think that in terms of this conversation, more generally speaking, how much of a role does education play? Not just like education as in you educating people, but as in integrating this stuff into the public education system. I don't know how much you work with the schools, um, if at all. Um, yeah, no, I'm like we we do talk with the public school system. OK, but we, we don't get to like dictate their curriculum. Yeah, of course. No. Yeah, that's their job. Um. But yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, I, I used to belong to a, a mentoring group in, in which, um, and we started off when, when the kids were, you know, in fifth grade. So my mentee was, was 10 years old. And I, and I can't realize, you know, I tried to take him to different museums and I can't realize like my work had no connection to his <laughs> everyday life. You know, like it, yeah, people wanted to argue about all kinds of things like on the waterfront. He never came to the waterfront. He doesn't live near the waterfront. He doesn't go to school near the waterfront. And yeah, I think like that was pretty humbling. Um, you know, sure. it, it was like a, a really, it is a, a really, or it has been a really good experience. Um, yeah, I, I think um, trying to find ways in which you can come up and highlight histories or stories that relate to, to a, a variety of people, um, especially, you know, 10 year olds uh, is, you know, really important, whether it's, you know, talking about how swimming pools, you know, yeah, African-American kids weren't allowed to go to swimming pools, like, yeah, you know, went for, for a long time. I think, you know, that's one way to start to so, like start where, um, yeah, start with, with the everyday, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Advertise your brand on Speakeasy. Contact the Alexandria Times to be a paid podcast sponsor. There are available spots for pre-roll, which is read at the beginning of the podcast, and mid-roll, read right here at the middle of the podcast for November and December of 2021 and dates in 2022. Call 703-739-0001 or email mstevens at alextimes.com for more information. Take it easy. I did want to set aside time time in the conversation here to uh, talk about, I guess, some of your favorite or, or some of the most interesting or most sort of bizarre chapters of Alexandria history that you've sort of learned about in, in your time here. I have to imagine you, you have found quite a few, but has, as you've sort of spent your time here since 2013, have any, I guess, new areas of Alexandria history jumped out at you as, as being of interest to you specifically? I mean, well, there's all kinds of bizarre stories. Um, one of the more interesting characters I've come across is um, uh, a gentleman named Magnus Robinson, who is um, an African-American leader, um, kind of like right after the Civil War. Um, and I, I, yeah, I want to be very clear. If you're listening to this part, you need to listen to the whole part and not just like the initial part that I'm going to tell you about, uh, which is, I had um, done some research about him, and mainly he had been a, a newspaper publisher, um, and he seemed to be very, I don't know, seemed to exaggerate his own importance. And 
initially I, I was going to write something that perhaps was not terribly com- complimentary about him. But like as I did more research, I, I came to realize like, no, like he's very much involved in providing African-Americans of Alexandria in post-Civil War, um, you know, what they need. Like he perhaps the best way to describe him is he's kind of like a ward captain. Like mm. people come to him and he has all kinds of resources, whether it's, um, you know, Masonic, um, you know, um, organizations or in churches or, yeah, I mean, it, you know, he, yeah, I, I think like, so I think like over time in the course of writing an article about him, I came to appreciate him uh, much more and kind of under, became, began to understand like, the situation or, or kind of um, his relationship to the African-American community at, at that time. And I think, like, I'm not going to say, like, my first instinct is always wrong about, about someone, sure. but in this case it was. Um, and, and so, like, that that was a, a pretty interesting uh, experience. Another one is um, I found out that um, Nicholas Trist, uh, who was um, a diplomat who um, negotiated the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which ended the Mexican-American War, um, during the Grant administration, he was the postmaster of um, of Alexandria, and um, which is kind of like a political favor. But uh, he lived um, at an address which is currently occupied by a current U.S. Uh, senator. Um, huh. So, yeah, I, I mean, there's lots of stories like that. There used to be a racetrack in, uh, like a horse racing track in Alexandria. Um, kind of the the relationship of Alexandria to debt um, and gambling in general um, was something that uh, struck me. Um, um, you know, for example, the Alexandria Canal is is kind of like a big gamble, and it and it went bust. <laughs> and, and this isn't that uncommon. Um, Robert E. Lee's father went from being um, the governor of Virginia to being bankrupt within five years. It's like you have like these interesting. These huge swings we think of, um, you know, our prominent citizens or our, you know, if you want to call them our, our town founders as being like these patricians, I guess, is, is the best. Yeah. Word. And the fact that, that they they were constantly in danger of, of defaulting on, on their loans. Um, and I think like if you want to draw it out further, then who does that impact? Right. Like it doesn't just impact Robert Lee's, you know, father. It, it's. Um, you know, or Light Horse Harry Lee's. Like, I mean, there's a whole domino effect, right? Like the people who work under him, the people who he owes money to, um, how does that affect their business? Um, you know, did he sell enslaved people in order to to pay back his debts? Um, yeah, like it it creates like this very, um, yeah, I mean, like I said, like a, a domino effect uh, for for the the ordinary people who who. Through no fault of their own, right? Like these aren't their decisions. Yeah, and it very much affects them. Yeah, I did. I did want to briefly also touch just, and this is this is really like top level conversation about this because it goes so deep. But what is Alexandria's place in Civil War history? Because it is a fascinating sort of crossroads of so many things. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that happened here, right? Like there, there's an occupation. Um, there's a lot of hospitals. Um, you know, because it was behind Union lines, a lot of yeah. enslaved people came here um, to uh, to take their own freedom. Um, you know, some of them um, died because the, the army was incredibly ill-prepared to, to take, uh, to care for that many civilians. Um, the railroad was, or the rail yard was incredibly important to the Union, which is why um, 
it was occupied the, the day that or the day after Virginia seceded. Um, you know, the first casualties um, in the Civil War occurred at, at what's now the what is it called? The Alexandrian, the hotel. I mean, yeah. that's that's not the the building, by the way. Like that building sure. is is long gone. Um, but yeah, I mean, the Marshall House uh, incident were were the the first casualties of, of the the war, as far as we know. Um, so yeah, I think what happened though is that it you know later on it became a, a battle about memory rather than one yeah of, of facts. Um, you know, or one of history. Yeah. Um, and so um, there was a time in which Alexandria very much um, identified itself with the Old South and with um, the Lost Cause. And, and, you know, for a variety of factors, including like many people like you and me coming from, from outside of Alexandria. Um, yeah. I don't want to say, you know, these aren't, these aren't closed conversations. Like there's not. Yeah. 100% consensus on, on what these things mean, even in this town. Um, but having said that, the, um, there is enough consensus to, to do certain things or, or to, to view this conflict differently than, let's say, the people who were in city council in the 1950s. Um, and I think like that's an important lesson for all of us, right? That like there are going to be times in which the city decides that it has a different interpretation of, of, of the same facts. Sort of closing out here, I did want to loop back around to what you were talking about kind of originally about why you came to to history and what interested you about it, those letters that you were reading sort of as a, as a young man. Do you feel like what history meant to you then versus what history means to you now has changed at all or has it remained the same in terms of what has drawn you to it? Um. No, I mean, I think like what draws me to it is is about humans uh, and yeah. their stories. Um, you know, I might use different techniques, I have different sources at, at my disposal, um, but ultimately that is what I'm passionate about, and and I think like that's been a passion um, ever since you know I was 12. I mean, they they say like if you do what you're passionate about, you don't work a day in your life, and that's totally true. I mean, I'm sorry, that's totally untrue. Um, <laughs> I, work a lot, I work a lot, and there are lots of times in which um, the work I do, is, it, yeah, doesn't make me, like, passionate. But I think, like, the overall passion of telling the stories of people whose stories weren't being told before and saying, like, no, these are still important, that, um, you know, these people count, too. Um, yeah, I mean, to a certain extent to use like another phrase, like, you know, these lives mattered as well. And, um, yeah, yeah I, I think like that has, has kind of never changed, even though so many other things have. We end every episode here on Speakeasy sort of, uh, we end with a question posed by the previous guest to the current guest without knowing who they are. And so, uh-huh. uh, the person who was on the podcast last, I, I actually, I believe you, you are somewhat familiar with Sarah Taylor. Our, yeah. Current legislative director. Yeah, she used to have part of my, yeah, she used to be like the public information officer for OHA. Yeah, uh, and perhaps this question is, is apt for what we were just talking about, but she asked, if you could talk to middle school or high school you, what would you tell them that you think would have been what you needed to hear at that time to be authentically comforting? I think we all have sort of an answer to this, but I am sort of curious about what you would have needed to hear from, from a future version of yourself. 
Yeah, I think I would have said, um, you know, kind of slow down. I I was like in yeah. such a rush to go to college. Um, I didn't really like enjoy high school that much. And, and um, I, I've been told that it's a little unusual, but I went to my 20th like high school reunion a few years ago. And, okay. and uh, yeah, I mean, I just really enjoyed like talking to, to people I went to high school with. Like it, it was uh, it made me feel like I kind of like robbed myself of, uh, mm. um, you know, yes, people who, who were much more friendly than, than I remembered them, I, I guess. And, and I think like had had I. Yeah, I mean, I guess my my um, uh, my advice to, to my former self would be like if you could spend five minutes or five seconds per minute, like when you're at school, like asking someone else about their life instead of worrying so much about yours. Like you'd be a lot more, like you'd enjoy it a lot more. <laughs> yeah. What is the question that you would pose to the next guest not knowing who they are? Yeah. So, um, you know, kind of like along the vein of like public service. And I know that you, um, you also have the uh, executive director of, of um, well, uh, what I'm, I'm going to ask about. Um, let's say that you have a new next door neighbor and they ask you what organization um, can I volunteer with in order to make Alexandria a better place? Like, which, what organization would uh, would you encourage them to volunteer with? Um, nice. There are a lot of options. Alexandria. There are. Yeah. yeah. There, there are like some some really really wonderful uh, organizations, and uh, and I'm glad that lots of Alexandrians feel like volunteering is is an important part of their lives. Yeah. What would you? I guess what would you say to to people? What organization would you want them to volunteer with? So I um, volunteered with um, Space of His Own, which is no longer um, okay. around, but um, but Space of Her Own is still around, and it's a really wonderful uh, organization that um, focuses on on, on giving um, you know young young girls like a a, a concept of um, well, I mean a, a space, but but more but but more than that, like something that's their own, like that a lot. Of, with the idea that like a lot of people don't have like a sense of privacy or, or a place yeah. to go to um, where, where they feel like, you know, they can focus on things like school or, or themselves. Um, so I, I really like that. Um, one of my colleagues has been volunteering with Casa Chiralagua for a long time. I think like they have a really wonderful program. Um, and this is just like in terms of mentoring or like working with, you know, kids in late elementary school through through junior high which uh, you know we were recently talking about you know kind of like yeah. that, how important that that time in, in your life is so yeah I, I think like those are the ones that that i would uh, encourage people to to look at um but like i said there there's so many wonderful organizations uh, in this town yeah we're, we're definitely fortunate to, to have so many options and we're fortunate to have you in in our in OHA and when working for the city. I, I I did want to say that you you sort of casually toss off these interesting facts about Alexandria history, and every time you do, I always think, I mean, that could be an entire article in and of itself. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, yeah, it, it's like this town ha- has a lot of, of history. It's got a lot more that you know that needs to be discovered. Um, you know. So much of it is important, and and we need to. And I, I try to, you know, work every day to to help uncover some, you know, to get a better understanding of, of what life was like for Alexandrians, like no matter where they, what in what part of the city they lived, and um, what time period. 
uh, they live in. So, yeah. yeah. I appreciate it, Dan, and, and thanks for taking the time to talk with me. I, I appreciate it, and I hope uh, people learned a little a, a thing or two, whether it's about a racetrack or about something else about the city's history. Thank you, Dan, and uh, thank you, Alexandria. Take it easy. All right. Thanks, Katie.